listening to the Pro Bono Happy Hour. I'm Rena Gleaser. Welcome back. Today's guest is Michael Lucas of the Atlanta Volunteer Lawyers Foundation, which is also known by the abbreviation AVLF. We discuss the pro bono culture in Atlanta, a few of AVLF's new and innovative initiatives, which are place-based, that is designed to take pro bono legal services into the community and provide holistic support, and some tips for navigating a career as a public interest lawyer. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Michael. Welcome to the Pro Bono Happy Hour. Thank you for making the time for us. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Let's jump right in. So to start, could you tell us about yourself, your background, and how you got to the Atlanta Volunteer Lawyers Foundation, or AVLF? Sure. Wow. Uh, how far back do you want me to go? I, um, I was a social worker uh, well before law school. That was my undergrad and master's degree, and I started out working with youth in public housing and eventually got pulled into kind of more macro and, and policy position. And at some point in that, uh, in that progression, got convinced to go to law school and, and had the benefit of knowing exactly what I wanted to do uh, with that law degree. I wanted to keep doing the same work and just hoped I'd be more effective with it with a law degree. So I went to Berkeley, a good place to nurture a public interest lawyer. And uh, from there, had a clerkship and a fellowship, but eventually landed in Georgia, in Atlanta, working for Georgia Legal Services as a traditional legal services attorney, riding circuit as we do in that organization to serve the counties uh, surrounding Atlanta, rural counties, and dealing more the same issues I deal with now, but uh, a rural version of those. But about seven years ago, came to the Atlanta Volunteer Lawyers Foundation, where a lot of what we take on is the same client base, the same substantive issues, but our full-time job is to recruit and train and supervise and hopefully inspire uh, lawyers in private practice uh, to, to do that work. So obviously a good fit for being on the pro bono happy hour, but our full-time job is to facilitate pro bono, um, but largely along the same lines and the same clients that I helped early in my career. Michael, where are you from? Where'd you grow up? Ah, I grew up in Austin, Texas. Nice. That's very nice. We, it's, it's, I'm so intrigued by your social work background. Um, I have had many discussions, including recently, which is why it's on my mind, that, you know, what is the phrase, you know, we're lawyers, we're not social workers, but, but you actually are, right? You know, as you mentioned, yeah. you, you, you have a social work background. How has that training made a difference in your legal career? Oh, my gosh. I, I reference it often and think that I probably use that degree as much or more as I use my legal degree. It's such, I think, an obvious compliment. You know, now it's come full circle now that I um, am more in management. It has been my vision, my kind of personal hope that we could bring social workers into our organization. There's some, we're not the first ones to think of that. There's some great models around the country and even in Atlanta, but we always believed that social worker would be a great adjunct to our legal services, not just for our clients, which I think is maybe a little more obvious, but particularly in the pro bono space, when I think many pro bono attorneys are used to that pro bono client calling them for everything, not just the legal issue that they're working on, but understandably the other related crises that they're having and um, the 
the best of our volunteers or most of them do their best to address that or reach out to us. But what if they also, the volunteer attorney, could reach out to that social worker directly who's uh, you know, associated with the case and let them handle that piece more effectively. So that's been our vision. I'm happy to report we added a social worker to our domestic violence program, which I can talk more about a, uh, several months ago at this point, and a kind of social work community advocate position to our place-based housing work. And it's, it's only confirming uh, what we thought, that that's really uh, a good marriage of, of disciplines, if you will. I, I'm so intrigued by the model of um, legal services organizations that also retain um, social workers, both for our move to more holistic services, right, that we're, we're treating the whole client and all of their various related issues and problems. But I also think it flags for me an issue that I've been thinking a lot about, and I'm sure, you know, social workers think about this a lot, and that's the sort of self-care that our staff and our volunteers mm. need, right? This is tough stuff. You know, you talked about your domestic violence unit. That is tough stuff that the lawyers and professional staff and then your pro bono volunteers are encountering, you know, really just difficult human drama. And we're not all, the lawyers, not social workers, um, haven't necessarily been trained in how to deal with um, traumatic and difficult situations. Um, and I think we, you know, the obvious connection, right, is how that can help our clients, but we also need to help ourselves. <laughs> I wow. think, right, there's a movement to getting smarter on that front too, because if your staff's all burnt out, if your pro bono volunteers are, you know, developing vicarious trauma because of the work we're asking them to do, that's a real failing if we're not taking care of that. So something I've been thinking a lot about the last few years, and there's so much overlap there and so much thinking to be doing. Yeah, that's interesting. I will admit that we haven't kind of turned our focus to that, although some of what you're saying was really resonating. We're talking increasingly in both of our kind of flagship programs, which are domestic violence on the one hand, and then housing, specifically tenants, tenants' rights, tenants' advocacy on the other, about kind of trauma centered trauma-focused care. It's always been something we've done in our domestic violence program. And again, I think the connection there is, is more obvious, but there's so much more we can do about training our staff and our volunteer lawyers on that, um, the difference that that makes when you're interacting with your client best practices. And so it's always been part of our domestic violence training. But increasingly, we're talking about that with our housing clients. So a lot of the conditions issues that we address through affirmative litigation to, to enforce um, the duty to repair, to try to get justice when our clients have lived in deplorable conditions for so long. Those, those, those clients are really in trauma, in, a, you know, in addition to kind of the general trauma of poverty. And I think there's some good um, trainers out there and resources out there about that, but I, I'm not sure how often it's been incorporated into pro bono programs, and we're trying to do a little better at it. Um, but you're absolutely right. Uh, maybe at some point we need a uh, uh, an in-house social worker for our staff as we take on these more traumatic cases. All, if you have any ideas for funding for that, yeah, uh, <laughs> it's always, there's always something. I think that's an area too where I think if it's on our radar screen and we're just talking about it and acknowledging it as an issue, that also goes a long way just to kind of shining a spotlight on that it's okay. You know, and we can share and talk about these things, but funding is is always great too. <laughs> um, Absolutely. <laughs> AVLF has a great tagline, 
the best legal representation money can't buy. And your mission is to create safe and stable homes and families by inspiring attorneys to fight for equal justice. So tell us a little bit more about AVLF, what it does, and what makes it so special. I touched on this a little bit before. We are, we are different than perhaps others that facilitate pro bono and that we're lucky enough that it is our full-time job. So we're standalone, nonprofit. We've been around for 36 years. When we started, we were created uh, uh, through a, a lot of the leadership in our community that included our legal aid, Atlanta Legal Aid, our legal aid provider here that is you know, nationally uh, respected and a great partner. Um, we've grown up over those 36 years and have a staff of 15 now that get to focus exclusively, again, on facilitating pro bono work. Um, we do that through two uh, flagship programs and then an increasing number of programs that support that work and those programs. So one is our domestic violence work. We run the state's only courthouse-based lawyer staff, a safe haven for survivors seeking legal protection. So everyone who comes to get a protective order in Fulton County, which is where Atlanta is, um, comes to an office that we run. We run it in partnership with a nonprofit uh, called Partnership Against Domestic Violence, which handles more of the safety planning, and they run shelters, so they're an access point for that. But all of our staff work in tandem, and all of our staff are trained in uh, trauma-centered care. We help the survivors get that, that temporary order that day and, and navigate the process, which is very difficult to navigate on your own, even just physically navigating the courthouse. Um, but then we, provide, we triage and provide lawyers for the 12-month hearing um, it is you know, a full-fledged adversarial hearing in most cases where you can get child support and custody and possession of a home and, and amazing um, remedies to help survivors break that cycle. But those are a lot harder to get without an attorney. Um, what we're most proud of is we, that is the program we added a social worker several months ago. We found that our clients, we were losing clients between that first meeting with them and that 12-month hearing, and there could be a variety of uh, things we could do about that from checking in about transportation needs to just checking in and encouraging. Um, our social worker does a lot more than that, but that's some of her key work. And we added a family law program. So uh, I mentioned there's programs that have grown out of our flagship programs. Survivors would come back, and the most common need was, you gave me the strength to break away. Now I need that divorce, or now he's not honoring child support obligations. And that was always the hardest to get folks pro bono attorneys for, to get representation for low-income folks. And so we now have a family law program, a family law lawyer who directs that. But again, it's true to our model. It's Atlanta's um, successful matrimonial bar who has um, volunteered to take on those family law-related cases for our um, for our more initially protective order clients. Um, so that's one side of the house. The other is our, our housing work. The flagship program is our Saturday lawyer program. This is the one that is actually older than us that we were created to give a formal home to. And every Saturday of the year, minus the holidays, uh, anywhere from seven to 15 volunteer attorneys from the city's largest firms, but also solos, uh, come down to our offices now. Um, historically, it was in legal aid offices for the last um, five or six years. It has been in our offices downtown, um, supervised by our program director. They meet with clients who've been pre-screened that have largely landlord-tenant issues and some unpaid wage cases. And that is just the access point where that lawyer 
um, in the first instance, helps us screen the case and figure out what's going on uh, with it more in depth than we could on the phone. Gets to be the first person oftentimes reviewing the documents, spending a full hour with the client, getting the full story, and helping us decide if a lawyer could help further. And about 80% of the time, the answer is yes, this is a case that should be taken. And then we ask that lawyer if they want to be that lawyer. And 80% of that time, that lawyer that met with them on Saturday takes that case home, and it becomes a, um, a case to enforce the right to, uh, to repairs uh, or for unpaid wages, and, but now it's being handled by King and Spalding or Austin and Bird or Denton's. Um, so that's, that's the model and kind of the program through which uh, the majority of our clients get services. Well, thank you for sharing. I know when I think of Saturday, of AVLF, Saturday Lawyer is definitely one of the first things that I think of. You, you mentioned the staff. Could you give us some sense of the size, how, how mighty or small <laughs> the, the staff of the organization is? Yeah, sure. So that answer is very different today than it would have been a year ago. Um, and I can talk about what's behind that growth, and it was very strategic, but we're up to 15 staff now. Um, that is, uh, includes six attorneys. We've been growing quickly. I, I hope I'm not losing count. Uh, two of those are our executive director and, and myself, the deputy director, so there may not be a lot of practicing on law, but the rest are the ones directly managing and running those programs that I just listed. We have a place-based staff attorney from our newest and I think most innovative program that is based in a high-needs neighborhood experiencing lots of um, housing instability uh, through, with a high level of um, tenants. And so we have a staff attorney dedicated to that neighborhood. We have the family law attorney. Um, so we have in every program attorneys directing the work of our volunteer attorneys. Um, and then there's just so much administrative staff to talk to everyone who calls um, obviously, some of the traditional positions of office manager and development director, but we're pretty lean for leveraging uh, hundreds and hundreds of kind of full representation cases every year, and and in the thousands when we talk about how many people we're talking to, advising, giving some kind of advice and counsel or brief services beyond those direct representations. I, I think that's great context, and I suspect that will surprise many listeners, right, <laughs> that all this work is being done by, you know, um, and coordinated through 15 people. It's, it's amazing. Um, you mentioned that you were the deputy director, so tell us a little bit about your role and how you spend your time. That's a great question. You weren't sent by our board, were you? <laughs> um, so, yes, it is... It is always evolving. I think it is exciting and great. When I started, just to give you some context, I ran the Saturday Lawyer Program and our complimentary programs that addressed housing and unpaid wage cases, kind of that side of our house. Um, so, and my heart still absolutely beats there. But now my, my uh, typical day involves managing a lot of our, our kind of strategic partnerships in the community, and, and that has been a real um, focus of ours over the last couple of years to establish more partnerships, to be more of an ally to other movements in the community, for example, to turn around a specific neighborhood. Um, and that can mean anywhere from other providers to uh, the Atlanta public school system, uh, to other educational providers in the community, and then, of course, to, to 
to funders, to potential investors in, in some of these new initiatives that we're doing. So a lot of my work is around that. Um, our, our, our executive director often refers to it as the advocacy director as well. Um, I am lucky that I get to spend a lot of time thinking, uh, hopefully deeply, about how we should deliver services, some of these new innovative models that are, that are place-based and partnering with the schools. I got to spend a lot of time thinking about what that would look like and then kind of the, the bigger picture recruitment effort to bring um, both firms to, that, to these new initiatives to sponsor um, a neighborhood or um, engage with us on a, on a new signature project. I get to spend a lot of my time with that, and then there is the kind of day-to-day -day running of the office, um, not nearly as sexy or interesting to hear about, but from running staff meetings to, to HR issues, a lot of the hiring that we've been doing lately. Um, for me, it works because probably my attention span is best for a different task every uh, – or different challenge every 30 minutes. Uh, sometimes I joke that I love an alternative business card that gets to say the fixer or something cool like that, which would – uh, much overstate my coolness, um, <laughs> but sometimes my days do feel like that. Yeah, I like to say Jill of all trades sometimes too. You know? uh, there you go. <laughs> uh, I like that. Um, those are definitely busy days, busy weeks, busy months. Is there anything on your wish list that you wish you could be doing more of if only you had the time? Yeah, well, so some of that required telling you about our, our latest innovative kind of n special initiative, but we have decided to really put resources and focus into launching place-based pro bono uh, projects focused on a community that's trying to either turn a school around, and I'm actually uh, talking to you right now from that elementary school, uh, or to turn a particular uh, neighborhood or group of schools around that has been struggling in our community. And so I'm, I'm hoping to make it a reality. My wish list is to really now get to focus on kind of the the – the implementation of those projects and bringing more partners to it and thinking even more strategically about getting those projects as, as, as right as possible. Um, we've been lucky enough to get them launched, and uh, one of the lessons we've learned is, is how much success requires uh, really staying on top of it, showing up as much as possible, um, whether that's an on-the-ground neighborhood association meetings or um, some of the um, collaborative meetings of providers in that neighborhood, that just takes a lot of time. But every time we do it, we learn that it makes our volunteers' jobs easier as they are welcome, welcomed into the community. Um, it, it helps us do a better job at, at finding clients who need us. And so I guess on my wish list is to free up 2017 to do even more of that. Well, since we're talking about it, let's kind of just jump there. We'll, we'll circle back to some other things, but we wanted to talk to you about these new in initiatives, which, as you've described them, are place-based <laughs> or designed to yeah. take pro bono into the community where, where the needs are. Um, so could you talk about them, sort of how they started, how you got the idea for them, what they're called, how you envision them, where they are today, where you think they're going? Just give us an education, because I think these are very exciting developments. Yeah, sure. I would love to. I've uh, like I've been talking about it for about a year and a half straight, um, and and don't tire of it. Um, where it really started was a couple of realizations. One that over the years we focused more and more on landlord tenant issues, and as we did, we learned that the here in Atlanta and I assume elsewhere, the the need was enormous. We're 50% renters. 
uh, in our in, in Fulton County have some of the highest income disparity, and so we see all the issues that you would um, suspect from that. But we started to learn even more about the intersection between that, the housing conditions that we worked on, the uh, um, the displacement, the evictions, uh, a few times a year for some families that we tried to stop, and we learned how much that uh, was devastating to educational outcomes, for example, whether that was enrollment turnover, whether that was just absenteeism because the kid is missing days, dealing with an asthma attack and going to the emergency room, um, and then even more directly, right, the intersection between that and those health issues, um, particularly in the conditions issues that we face. We're very wet kind of community, if you will, and we have a lot of upper respiratory issues, a lot of moldy apartments, and we just learned more about um, how devastating that, that connection was between the housing conditions and health outcomes. At first, we were just using it for training our volunteers and inspiring them, and then we started to think, couldn't we do something more intentional with that? Couldn't we move the needle in the other direction uh, on the effect that those conditions have if we were focusing our resources in a, in a hard-hit neighborhood? We also kind of realized that Everything that we did to make our services accessible, we would send um, MARTA cards, which is our kind of local public transportation, to our clients so they could get to our offices downtown. You know, we could only go so far with that. Really, these communities that were facing those issues were the most isolated. And so uh, part of our desire to grow was to grow in a way that made our services more accessible. In a sense, take our clinic, the 17th floor, tree center where we are, and, and bring it into some of these communities where we were already seeing most of our cases. And we looked at data, and we even invested in data, you know, visualization, if I'm getting that term right, so we could, so we could plot these on a map and see. Um, and all those things came together uh, for us to target a few areas in Atlanta where we knew there were the most cases, the highest levels of renters, the highest poverty. We even were able to look at um, upper respiratory admissions data for a couple of our local hop hospital systems that our client base utilizes, and it uh, really honed us in on a couple of a uh, couple of regions. And we started talking to other partners who were already working in that region, and, and that led to where I'm talking to you from today uh, was our first initiative that we launched. So there is an elementary school in southeast Atlanta that was the lowest performing in the state, and there was a notorious is a notorious housing complex right across the street where we had always had cases, um, but there was uh, you know kind of this realization of just how much the success of a really great turnaround effort that's ha happening at this elementary school, how much that success turned on housing stability, turned on just how many evictions we were seeing from this one complex in a school year, just how many deplorable conditions issues were rampant, and um, Luckily, we found a great partner in uh, the nonprofit that's helping turn the school around, purpose-built schools, and that saw that same vision and understood the connection to housing issues. And we'd always wanted to do this place-based work around our, our landlord-tenant um, specialization. And so it worked here beautifully. We have a full-time staff attorney and a full-time community advocate working in this elementary school. I was meeting with them this morning. They spend most of their time at the kind of notorious almost 400 unit complex that is literally across the street, making sure everyone who is facing displacement or failing to get repairs done gets an attorney. And at the end of the day, the idea is to do something about the 40% enrollment turnover that the school experiences historically. Every year, 40% of the kids um, cycle in and out and you'll never turn around a school or community 
with that. And so um, we're just thrilled to be a part of that, the pro bono piece. Um, and you're, you're a kind and patient listener, and so is your audience, hopefully. We, we get passionate about this and can talk about it at length. But the pro bono connection is we're still doing it the way we always have. That full-time attorney and community advocate, their job is, in large part, to bring in seven of the city's largest and leading law firms to this effort. Seven of them have signed up to, to take on the cases from this neighborhood, have uh, all uh, dedicated uh, anywhere from five to ten attorneys each to this project have all gone through specialized training about this neighborhood specifically and the legal issues. And we're going to be a, a task force, if you will, or a SWAT team for um, kind of all of the above, stopping evictions, getting repairs done. Um, we have funding to make sure those families get dehumidifiers. So when um, so when Kilpatrick Townsend attorney is dealing with the landlord on a mold issue, in the meantime, our community advocate is delivering a dehumidifier uh, so that kid can breathe a little better while we work to get the landlord's attention. Um, but really the linchpin of it is having that many firms dedicated and, and, and engaged in the project. And what do you call this project? What's its name? So we call it Standing with Our Neighbors. And what is the best place for people to get more information about it? Oh, that's great. So there is information on our website, which is www.avlf.org. There's um, a, uh, a little graphic and, uh, and some narrative about this project specifically. It is pretty new, so we are, we're, we're, we're building up more um, information for the public about it, but we really just launched here in terms of having staff on the ground in uh, late September. So more, more, more to follow. Yeah, that's fantastic. What do you think... What would success look like for you for standing with our neighbors? If you sort of, what data are you looking at? What metrics and, and what, just to you, it doesn't even have to be sort of the official, you know, sort of yeah. blueprint or something, but what would success look like to you? Yeah, so, you know, in the short term, it's, it's um, less tangible things like building trust with this community and with the residents of Forest Cove, which is the complex I've been referring to. Um, it's, it's a community that... Um, where trust is an issue, and they came by that honestly. But I think that is why place based and so is so important. Having two staff that are across the street and are, you know, always showing up is is critical. And I think that's even you know, especially difficult for pro bono pro programs often to to build that because you've got you know a variety of pro bono attorneys, um, oftentimes coming in you know scattershot or less organized than we are doing here, and so. That is the short-term success, but the long-term is we are looking at metrics. So the, our re, one real focus is that enrollment turnover rate for this school. Um, this school is turning into an amazing beacon of hope in the community, and it's no understatement already just in the first month, just the changes to the physical plant and all the other holistic resources that our partners are bringing to this school is starting to change everyone's hope in their children's education here, and we don't want... Um, nearly 200 of those kids to uh, not have that next year because of the 40% enrollment turnover. And so we are measuring that. Um, we have partnerships with Atlanta Public Schools and the nonprofit that's running this school so that we can measure those rates. And that's obviously kind of a longer-term number. They don't come out till obviously, the next school year. But that is a big measure of success. Um, the other is absenteeism rates. We're tracking it um, in a more focused way for the client's 
that we are helping with conditions issues in their home and asthma related housing issues, which may seem real niche, but sadly is um, a large number by volume. That's a large number of our cases here. So we're looking at that and we're not naive that absenteeism may be driven by a lot of other factors, but why don't be, we don't want to be scared of measuring that. Even if it shows that we haven't figured out exactly how to address it, we are, we have agreements and a data sharing arrangement so that we can look at that. And are our services in this one elementary school making a difference on absenteeism rates? Um, on a more micro level, we're tracking all those kind of outcomes for our individual cases. Um, were we able to secure repairs? Were we able to stop of evictions? How many folks have we reached with um, know your rights talks and meetings and breakfasts around those same issues? Um, all the things that we're able to do better because we have staff uh, dedicated here. Well, we want to keep in touch and we want updates. <laughs> we want to watch this project and, and keep our pulse on it because it's very exciting. Um, another new project that we read about that we thought we could hear a little bit about is mobile justice. You know, really, as we have developed both of these kind of new strategic directions, standing with our neighbors and mobile justice went or go hand in hand and really came out of the same idea that we need to do more to make our services more accessible. And uh, mobile justice shares a little bit of the same notion of being place-based, although it is um, the uh, concept behind it is to take some of the same things we're learning about what works with standing with our neighbors and make sure that we're, we're not forgetting about our, our clients countywide. So we serve Fulton County and we are not, um, we are not stopping any of the programming that we've had countywide. The Saturday lawyer program addresses landlord tenant issues um, countywide and that is ongoing, but we want to apply the same kind of staffing model and innovations to that program. Um, I'm speaking in the future tense because as it is, you know, as it is played out, we've had more success in finding partners and candidly funding partners for the place-based work. Many of those have been place-based funders, and that's exciting. I mean, I, I do think that the best learning and the best outcomes will come out of these place-based projects. Um, but again, we don't want to forget about kind of our countywide programming. And so the idea with mobile justice is employ the same kind of community advocate community outreach worker that we have as part of the, the place-based team to, to, to be part of the Saturday Lawyer Program, to have someone who's going out to the cases that come up in, in our non-neighborhood um, projects uh, with assessing their housing conditions uh, more quickly because we can send someone out. We get calls from folks that don't live in this focused neighborhood here but who are, are not mobile. Um, so can we have staff that's dedicated to going out and reaching them to delivering uh, those dehumidifiers or air filters when it's a mold case. Um, we have funding, thanks to Kaiser Permanente for, um, and the Home Depot Foundation for those type of health and safety related products, but someone does have to assess who needs them and it turns out someone does have to uh, purchase them and uh, deliver them. We can't have a client come on the subway. Uh, to get the size dehumidifiers that we're able uh, to purchase for families with children suffering from that. So we want to kind of implement that into our countywide program, and that's what mobile justice is, and, and that will necessarily create more cases, which is what uh, we want. There's more work and there's more lawyers willing to do it, so it would necessarily mean additional lawyer um, to, to assist with the Saturday Lawyer Program. That is that is what mobile justice is, and we're we're... We are excited to find uh, funders who are interested in it. 
Stay tuned. Got it. What yeah. mo <laughs> what motivates and inspires you? Oh wow. Um, well, you know, going back, I mentioned it in the bio, which you were were kind to ask about how I got here. My work started in public housing and a lot of the conditions like our clients live in here, like are across the street from this elementary school here. And uh, when I was working there, I was running sports and rec programs and trying to be a good mentor myself and facilitate, you know, mentors. Uh, so I've learned a lot about the conditions they live in since, and especially through the lens of the law. But those same clients, those same families, some of which I still keep in touch with, even though I won't tell you how long ago that was, um, uh, that, that literally motivates me to stay on this path. Um, but, you know, more on the ground level here day to day, the families that we meet. I just came from a meeting in kind of the next neighborhood where we want to launch the second round of, of kind of standing with our neighbors. And it was a group of 30 um, uh, largely single moms, all women of color, all living in tenant conditions like I've been describing. Um, but we're also not only showed up to this um, organizing meeting to not only hear from me, but to learn about some ballot measures that we co have coming up that are critical to education and other day-to-day uh, -day issues that they deal with and to organize around those. But they were the president and vice president and treasurer of their PTA. Um, it, it turns out in schools that we were getting ready to partner with and just to see that kind of the strength and the assets that our clients have and, and to the fact that, you know, our services hopefully are just standing up with them when they're standing up for their rights. Um, it's just that they have the strength to do that inspires me. I couldn't, I don't know how I could pull off anything uh, living in the conditions that they deal with or dealing with poverty and the way that they survive it. And obviously I can tell maybe an even more powerful story about our survivors of domestic violence. So definitely the strength of our clients inspires us uh, to, to keep pushing, to keep standing with them. And then finally, the, I think about this a lot, the, the kind of gut-punching contrast between my kindergartner's day-to-day uh, -day life and experience in the school that she goes to where we're lucky enough to live, and then I come here to the elementary school in one of the most impoverished communities not far from my neighborhood um, in one of the most struggling schools. It's, it's, it's a different kind of motivation, I guess, but it definitely... Uh, keeps me going when I see that contrast and that's just not okay um, for me personally. It's not okay to be happening in our community and the fact that maybe we can play a little role in it, um, I guess at a real personal level, motivates me. How would you describe the overall access to justice landscape in Atlanta and have things um, changed at all since you first moved to town? Yeah. Um, so on one level, it's really robust and rich in that we have a lot of legal nonprofits doing work, and, a, and, we're, and we're very much integrated into the larger bar through pro bono work, through um, kind of all being treated as equals in our, like the Atlanta Bar Association. And so that's powerful, and that was, that was new to me to the extent to which that's, that's true here. Um, and so we're, we're, um, we're interconnected, we're supportive of each other. There's a lot of us addressing a lot of different issues, um, but we're still here in the South. We're still here in a city 
for all its prosperity, also has, um, I think, the largest disparity between the haves and the have-nots. And, um, and so it's still a real struggle. We still barely scratched the surface. I know a uh, study, which is fairly old now, showed that 90% of the low-income folks uh, uh, didn't get their legal needs met. You know, so that, that all of us combined, the amazing legal aid organizations and all the nonprofits doing this work, um, and, and all the pro bono attorneys doing are maybe getting 10% of that need. And so, you know, that is a real struggle that will continue. And the good news is we've got a private bar that gives generously time and money to that effort. Um, but it's still, uh, maybe we need that counseling you mentioned earlier. It's still a tough road for those of us in this space because um, the need here is, is never ending. And we're, we're dealing in some cases with much more kind of fundamental basic issues than perhaps my colleagues. Um, I I'm, went to law school in the Bay Area um, and have lots of good friends there. Sometimes they are dealing with um, issues of a different order where we're um, or have at least a set of legal rights to work with that may be helpful for their clients, certainly in the tenant space that we just simply don't have here. Glass half empty, glass half full. <laughs> just, yeah. um, so what's AVLF at the movies? Ah, that's great. So three years ago, it was actually inspired by seeing, I think, I want to get this right, but I'm pretty sure it was uh, American Winter being shown at um, Equal Justice Conference in, could it have been Portland? I don't want to get that wrong, but we started thinking about how much that film and film in general can, can, can do a good job at helping kind of folks connect to the larger issues that our clients are dealing with. So our pro bono attorneys are amazing at taking on those cases and many of them kind of gain a deeper understanding of the systemic issues that our clients are dealing with from representing those clients. But oftentimes kind of it, it's harder to see the bigger picture and we thought film would be a great way to to, to make that connection. We are pretty good at putting on events at AVLF, but uh, to that point, all of them were asking for your money. And we thought it would be nice to have something that was very intentionally not a fundraiser, but was an awareness raiser and a consciousness raiser, not in a preachy way, but show this film and then have a panel of experts to come afterwards to continue that dialogue. Because a lot of times they're, they're, they're tough and they can be discouraging. Um, just as the reality is, so let's have a panel afterwards to talk about what is what did these issues look like in our community? What can we do about it? Um, we've been successful all three years now bringing in either the, the director or producer or one of the protagonists from the documentary. Um, sometimes, uh, you know, at some expense, flying them in and, and, and our firm partners have helped with that. But aside from that help, we have succeeded in making no money uh, from it which was my promise to our executive director, um, but really kind of raising awareness and filling our local movie theater and having kind of an amazing dialogue afterwards. So what now it's a full-fledged part of our mission um, to kind of spread awareness about the same issues that, that we work on. 
I love that, whether it's pop culture, documentaries, um, they're attention grabbers, they're great ways to educate and inform and bring people into the fold um, to motivate. And I think we have to use all these tools <laughs> that are at our disposal. Absolutely. And culture is a great one, you know, um, and the arts. And I think that that is a great thing. And AVLF at the movies just always seem very catchy and like a great educational tool that ah. people could get excited about. Well, thank you. About. And, and yeah. this, uh, this may be risky, but I welcome ideas from anybody listening to other documentaries. Our challenge now is that we've had three really amazing HBO documentaries, so high-level production value with great, again, either directors or kind of stars of the films that were, we were able to contact and bring in, and, and it's been great developing those relationships. But the challenge is we've got to come up with uh, the bar is high. We've got to come up with good documentaries every year that are somewhat connected to the issues that we work on. And so uh, on that same website that I mentioned, uh, uh, avlf.org, is my email. I welcome suggestions. The time comes where we realize, oh, this is coming up. We've got to start screening documentaries and figuring this out. And I liked your suggestion of it. Maybe it could also be, it doesn't have to be a documentary. Um, there could be amazing, uh, you know, uh, film, uh, fiction that still addresses our issues. So uh, I welcome any suggestions. And next thing you know, we'll all be going to Sundance as a recruiting tool, go. right? It's part of our portfolio. So if you I'm were... I'm angling for that. Yeah. Toronto, Cannes, you know, you <laughs> name it. <laughs> um, if you were pro bono czar for the day, what one or two things would you tell lawyers working at large law firms? Wow. Um... You know, I think that the case for doing pro bono because of the impact you can have is is strong and is and surely has been made before, and they hear that. I would really try to impress upon them my belief that it will do wonders for your career, not just skill development, which I also think we talk about as trainers, but professional development. Um, at least this is true in Atlanta, and I imagine elsewhere, that a lot of the real – uh, rainmakers, for lack of a better term, a lot of the real kind of titans of our bar who I know not only um, are kind of in leadership positions in the bar, but are very successful in their practice and for their firms, part of their, part of their growth, part of their progression and getting to that point was service, right? And it started with, in some cases, we were lucky enough that it started with the Saturday Lawyer Program. There's lots of managing partners in town whose early litigation experience was our clinic well before I came along. Um, and, and perhaps that evolves from individual pro bono cases to serving on the board of these organizations and then serving in the bar. But at the heart of kind of distinguishing themselves from the pack was community service and pro bono. That's, and I, you know, I preach that there's a, um, a business development case for that. When you are uh, taking cases and receiving awards is, is part of what we do and sitting on boards um, and going to community functions that AVLF puts on, you know, the same um, uh, titans of industry or corporate leaders in Atlanta, if you will, that's where they are too and that's where relationships are built and that's how real successful firms rise. And so I, I imagine I could be prone to overstate it, but I really think it's key for setting yourself apart and, uh, and really building 
your career and networking internally and externally in your firm. I just think there's a real kind of business case for it, um, even just in uh, self-interest. So I would, I would preach that anytime someone would let me. Do you have any other general advice for law students or lawyers who are just starting their careers? Wow. Um, yeah, I, you know, I think that it's important to not lose, not lose sight of that thing that motivated you to go to law school, too. And I know that may sound cliche, but I remember, in my experience, there, there being this sense that you kind of had to you kind of had to choose sides. And if you were going to the firm route for whatever reason, and there's, and there's lots of great reasons, including that's what was intellectually stimulating to you, to personal financial reasons, whatever it is, um, that you kind of had to make that decision. I think we do sometimes do a disservice in kind of the public interest community, or certainly as that is uh, represented within law schools at making that, that split. And so I would just... Uh, like to tell law students that you know it does not have to be that way. There is a, a massive, vibrant community of really dedicated pro bono attorneys in Atlanta that outnumber the number of public interest attorneys that there uh, necessarily are, and they are able to give to that cause um, in amazing ways. And that no reason that can't be kind of nurtured and and thought about and planned for. Even in law school, um, we try to do a little bit of that at AVLF and providing opportunities. Um, but when we do, we maybe are more aware than others because we have to be that the 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 market for those students isn't necessarily just those who know they're going to do public interest work um, uh, and work in a public interest organization. That you know that's something law students can be thinking about as a, as as pro bono work. Um, from even kind of the very start of their legal career. So as, as someone who does hiring, do you think that law students or lawyers who ultimately want to work in the public interest should focus exclusively on that track? In other words, is time spent at a law firm a, a black mark? Yeah, that's a great question that I get a lot. I mean, honestly, to an extent, yes, there is that. I don't agree with it, and I have probably... Uh, come around even more on that point as I've worked where I work. Um, but there is some truth to that. I think it is um, both totally understandable and, but maybe a little short-sighted, but that is, that element is definitely there. Um, and, but I think it can be overcome. So I've gotten this question just from individual attorneys who want to make that switch. I've gotten to know them very well and know their commitment through pro bono work and they've figured out how to make that jump um, financially uh, to working in the public interest arena. And, and what I would say is just if you're making that jump, address it. Think ahead of time how you're going to address that elephant in the room, because even if they are um, kind of open to the idea as a hire, as an employer, they're going to wonder, okay, why are you making this shift now? What can you tell me um, so that I understand you are – kind of a, a true believer, if you will, is, is committed to this as, uh, you know, those of us who have been doing this full time. And I don't think personally there should be any judgment in there, but there is going to be that question, just like any other kind of obvious um, looming question from your, from your work history, you should be prepared to answer it. And I've heard lots of great examples. We have hired um, in that manner 
uh, of explanations that um, that really answer why that you know, including the preparations you've done financially with your family to kind of prepare for this leap that it's not um, just because I couldn't find anything else or whatever it is. People have great stories about that. I just think people need to be prepared uh, and willing to, to tell them and share that. I get asked that a lot, too, and that's that's a great answer. I, I think that yeah. is really helpful for people and, and makes a lot of sense. Um, so let's end with this, Michael. Who is or who are, if you have more than one, your pro bono or access to justice role model? Wow. Um, well, our this this um, I, I promise I would be saying this even if it wasn't recorded. But our executive director Marty Allen is one of those. I didn't have a lot of exposure to. Um, the pro bono model of uh, of access to justice work until I came to AVLS and and Marty has been here for a long time and is a leader in our bar and really uh, an amazing role model of how to pay attention to all the constituencies that matter for this work for our our, our clients and our firm partners and figuring out uh, uh, the best ways to kind of nurture both and take care of the needs of both ultimately uh, to better meet the needs of our clients. And so he's definitely a big role model for me. Um, And, you know, you asked about kind of what inspires me and motivates me. I could list individual names. I won't mean much to most listeners, but um, our – public interest organization attorneys that work here in Atlanta um, and do this work full time and help inform the work that we do um, and, 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 and literally uh, provide the, uh, to us the clients that we serve, they, they're role models. It, now I am lucky enough to spend a lot of my time running around the city and meeting with different partners and talking to funders. And um, while it's critical work and I really enjoy it. It's, it's not in the trenches um, like they are nearly as much. And uh, so the folks who get up and do that every day are definitely my role models. Well, in addition to the people working in the trenches who are for sure heroes for all of us, please send Marty regards from his friends at the Pro Bono Institute. We are oh, big, will. big fans of his. And Michael, we're big fans of yours. So thank you so much for talking with me today. It was a pleasure discussing all of the inspiring work that you do. Oh, this was so much fun. Uh, Anytime, I really appreciate being invited to do this. Thank you so much to Michael for joining us today and for all the inspiring work that he does. You can read more about the Atlanta Volunteer Lawyers Foundation at avlf.org. New and archived episodes of our podcast can be found on iTunes and YouTube. We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, feedback, and suggestions to probono at probonoinst.org. Be warned, we might just read them on the air. As always, to learn more about the Pro Bono Institute and our work, including events such as our annual conference, which will be in March, please visit our website at probonoinst.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Pro Bono Happy Hour. Thank you.